Okay, good morning friends. Nice to see you again. Good morning or possibly afternoon or evening, uh, those of you who are here on the live stream, which could be in any time zone. So um, maybe you're even up in the middle of the night because of the dedication to your practice. So uh, welcome. And we sort of evoked yesterday morning that sense of solidarity. Sitting in the company of all beings is the way it's sometimes expressed in the tradition and the way in which kind of having an interaction with people participating at home through the stream is a kind of beautiful expression of that and likewise for those people at home that sense of uh, sitting in the company of others sitting in the company sharing this space with us and also of course where that comes from that sense of sitting in the company of all beings the recognition that it's all the same mind, really. You know, we fill it out with the little personal details and dramas of my circumstances, and my history, and my needs, and all of that which personalizes our experience. And all of that which also, like yesterday we said, feeds into this kind of mysterious uniqueness of being this location, of being this one here. And yet... There's this sort of paradox, and a lot of Dharma practice is full of paradox, and I might touch on some of that today. This paradox where we're, on the one hand, really invited to sense into and honor and respond to the unique configuration of life that's happening right here. We're invited to really inhabit this one's life. And on the other hand, simultaneously, this sense of being in the company of all beings, I'm invited to recognize the way in which this mind isn't really mine. And this mind actually, underneath its the details and dramas and personalized stuff that I call me, is just it's just like it's a human mind. Right? It does human stuff. It knows human emotions. And there's nothing much original about that. <clears throat> we all know joy, and we all know anger, and we all know jealousy, and we all know confusion, and we all know impatience, and we all know uh, the, the stuff of a human life. And that, that sense, that phrase which I find very evocative, sit in the, to sit in the company of all beings, right? Really, we're, we're doing that by virtue of being human. We're in the company of all beings because we're sharing having a human mind. We're sharing having this human consciousness that registers <clears throat> the sensory inputs of what's seen and heard and touched, that registers the cognitive inputs of what's imagined and wished for, remembered. And the really the recognizing that, and the contemplating that, and the, the, the sitting in that is a very powerful way, actually, of really recognizing. Not just as an idea, but actually recognizing our fundamental solidarity with all beings. And, you know, we touched very briefly on the kind of political uh, situation yesterday. And whatever details one may get into 
of the politics and even in a con- sort of conventional right versus left kind of difference of views that might arise. What do we, what's, we really see, and what certainly seems the most painful thing to see in a febrile, polarized uh, political situation, but equally actually in a febrile, polarized family situation, or any time we're in conflict with others, we see how the nature of that conflict is that we, we contract our own sense of self. Right? We usually contract about being right, around how right we are. Right? That's the nature of conflict. Conflict's difficult because I'm right and you're wrong, obviously. Right? And we, we lose, that's what the nature of conflict is, is we, re- we lose, or we maybe lose even more than usual, our sense of the solidarity of all beings. Whereas, you know, harmony, you know, harmony in your family, harmony with your partner, harmony with loved ones, harmony with your children... We, it's like we intuitively, even though we might not recognize it or call it that, we recognize our solidarity with the other, our shared humanness, our shared experience. We spoke yesterday about contraction and relaxation. And those, just that, the physical <coughs> sense of contraction, called clinging, right, in Buddhism, and the, and the sense of relaxation, often called letting go, are very, very tangible examples of the way in which we experience our solidarity with all beings. The more tense you are, and you can try now if you're just tense, the more tense you are, the more you'll feel like a self. Right? Right? If you actually tense your muscles, Martin seems really solid now. Right? The more... I do that. The more I can feel the edges of my body, I can feel the sense of solidity in my body, the more I really feel like there's a really proper me here now. And then if I relax that, I mean, it's very tangibly the, the density and intensity of me, the feeling of me, just starts to dissipate. It starts to dissipate. And I, I find that just that example, that's why, I don't know if you did it, but I'm you know, asking you to just do it. And then, ah, it's a very tangible example of how conflict and reinforcing a sense of difference is very much, as a follow-on from our exploration of the sense of self yesterday, a way of increasing the sense of self, which correspondingly, of course, means also increasing the sense of other and then all the stuff we do over that self and other, in and out, right and wrong, good and bad, allowed and not allowed, acceptable and unacceptable, normal and abnormal in some ways. And so that's, we're just doing that as a kind of gross example of tensing and relaxing. And we also spoke yesterday about you know, the kind of the infinite capacity of our uh, of our being we could say to relax most of us or most people know a degree of relaxation that still actually has a lot of unconscious tension in it the basic tension of being an ego it's hard work trying to be somebody 
and we've learned in various ways, which are actually you know, helpful psychological developments. We've learned to be a more or less functional somebody. And the fact that you're here today, congratulations, you can only be here today by having got to be a more or less functional somebody. <laughs> it's a great way station on the way to liberation. It's a great way station. And now, of course, the challenge is to, uh, what might we say, move, move beyond being somebody? Or, or f- f- maybe actually we might say to fill out more, to fill out that somebodyness, so that we don't need to rely on the, the boundaries of it. And that's, like we, again, like we were saying yesterday, uh, to a great extent, a process of relaxation. We spoke about emptiness and love yesterday. And there's, a, there's this very famous, beautiful line from Nisargadatta Maharaj, which speaks so... It's maybe the... My teacher called... Uh, there's a book of, of uh, Nisargadatta's teachings called I Am That. And my teacher called it the spiritual textbook of the 20th century. Which is, you know, it's a big title, so check it out. Have you, have you not, have, maybe, I kind of, you know, just having been in this world for so long, it seems like, yeah, Nisargadatta Maharaj, everyone knows. But I'm aware that, that it may be a very obscure reference for some of you, right? So he was a, he was a fascinating guy. He lived in uh, Bombay. Uh, I think he died in the 80s. And he uh, had a beady shop. Beadies are these tiny little handmade cigarettes uh, in India that are made from rolling up a leaf. And he sold beadies at this little shop, like his shop was maybe this big. It was like a little box on legs. If you've been to India, you know those kind of little kiosk shops they have. And he'd sell beadies in the morning, and then he would uh, offer teachings in the afternoons. And people would come and crowd into his house. And there's some great footage of him, actually, that Jack Cornfield shot in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, when having any kind of uh, you know, means of filming something was a big deal. And it's the only footage of him that uh, remains. It's very interesting. He was very kind of abrasive. He'd be very rude to people. Wonderful guy. <laughs> You're New Yorkers. You'd love him. <laughs> So the line is, he says, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. Now, I've actually spent whole retreats sometimes just unpacking those three lines. There's so much in them. I certainly had a lot of reflective insight juice from those lines myself. Classically, in Buddhism, we tend to emphasize the first part of the line, right? Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And we see that when, like we were exploring yesterday, these myriad senses of ourselves that arise, you know, I am angry or I am happy. And there's a sense of self that goes with that. It just configures in a moment, and we take it through this basic sort of tensing into our human shape to be who we are in a different moment. And then we've got the roles, uh, roles of 
whatever they might be, our name, our family history, our gender, our ethnicity, the work that we might do, etc. All of which we take on as being that. And when we investigate it, we see that they're, they're kind of, they're empty in classical language. We see that they just, they come and go depending on situations. We see that they're sort of fleeting and uh, unfindable in some way. And so, as that happens, and as we, we allow the experience of what we call me, or the various me's, to be available to awareness, again, to take, retake some of the language of yesterday, we find, or as Nisargadatta says, wisdom tells us we're nothing. It's unfindable. I don't need to take this one so personally. And yet, he also says, um, this was the other part that we explored yesterday, so we were looking at emptiness and love. Emptiness is what we find when we look through the kind of wisdom eye at experience. And yet love as the, the essence, the engine of our practice. We were talking about that as allowing experience to be available to awareness, caring for what's happening. And we find when we love what is, it's, there's a, the way, what love does is it includes I include this and then I'm, the sounds that I heard that I hear I kind of extend that welcome to them and they're included and I find that everything I'm hearing and everything I'm seeing and everything I'm conceiving of and everything I'm doing is being included it's being included in this embrace of awareness and so whereas that first avenue, the wisdom avenue, if you like, drops us, unpeels us into nothing, that sense of expanding, including, allowing, caring for, has the opposite effect of expanding us. Whitman's line you know, about being, I'm vast, he says, I, I contain multitudes. And sometimes that sense of being in solidarity with all beings. Actually not being able to find the place where self ends and world begins. You can find it in an ordinary way, right? A skin boundary. But in an unordinary way of just sensing. You know, we can't really find it. Sometimes in the quietitude of meditation, sometimes people report even being a little disturbed. Like, I couldn't feel where my body ended and the floor began. Right? Like that might be a source of alarm. And it might be the first time we experience it because it can feel so ordinary that as if, because we're so used to believing our experience or believing our interpretations of experience, that it can seem as if somehow I might actually just drop into the floor and dissolve into a puddle in some way. And yet, when we start to get more used to that, we start to actually feel our solidarity with all beings. And the fact that other beings may have a very different sensibility to us, that they might look different to us, that they might express their political views or their beliefs differently from us, that they might have different lifestyle values... Things that we might, as we were saying yesterday, kind of disagree with, want to challenge, etc. We start to see that, oh, most fundamentally, they're a human body and heart and mind 
trying to do their best, trying to feel happy, trying to get, trying to feel uh, peaceful in some way, trying to kind of protect their own fragile self-sense. And that taste, which I'm sure you've all had in some way, maybe in a very clear and explicit way, maybe in a little more uh, ambiguous way, but that sense of an expanded sense of self, a more inclusive sense of self, the whisper of love telling you you're everything. And then the, the beauty of that statement, whereas we might hear in some teachings or practices, either the first half, you are nothing, right? So that self is empty. Or we might hear in some of the more devotional traditions, you are everything. Just, we're all one. Nisargadatta, his name incidentally translates as Mr. Natural. <laughs> Come on, what a good name is that. <laughs> the kind of, the, the freeness of, of seeing and allowing and following and being informed by both of those profound, beautiful senses of things. Allowing the wisdom view that sees this is the ephemeral, fleeting, empty, impersonal nature of just this. This coming and going apparition of Martinness that does its little dance. And similarly, can follow and allow and make use for this, this exquisite, ever-expanding sense of inclusiveness that actually allows us to love everything, that actually allows us to love everyone, that actually allows us to know and sense and feel and see our solidarity with all beings, to see that we exist in the company of all beings. And yet, without getting stuck in the position of one or the other, I am nothing or I am everything. Wisdom tells me this. Love tells me this. And between these two, my life flows. Unfettered by being stuck in a position. So, these... This in in some ways is some kind of recap for some of the material we looked at yesterday. We looked at emptiness, love. We looked at liberation, not as the final destination that we were somewhat pejoratively calling enlightenment, but as the, the liberating moments of where one sees whatever, whatever one sees about some way, large or very small, that one's uptight, contracted, resistant, compelled. And the liberation of that seeing, and that relaxing, that freeing. And then we also looked at um, what we were calling the refining of the various areas of our experience. And there's a certain um, 
paradox again. I said that word might come up a few times today. A certain paradox between, on the other, on the one hand, this sense of our practice, it's it's um, it's operation, if you like, and its fruit being very immediate. We spoke yesterday about not having this far-off sense of when I get somewhere, but liberation here and now, available to experience like this, the freeness of our engaging right here. And at the same time, we spoke about this sort of endless, endless process of refining, refining, refining. And that's a paradox one sees often also in... um, in spiritual teachings generally. Some, just like some follow more the I am nothing, wisdom view, and some follow more the I am everything, love view. Some teachings tend to rely on more of a kind of path context. right? That, that, that spiritual practice is a path, a, the path of refining and cultivating, refining and cultivating. And beautiful expressions of that. Also, we looked at that which can be refined and refined yesterday. And then there's also that sense of cultivating, cultivating generosity, cultivating kindness, cultivating uh, letting go. And then other traditions emphasize the a sort of suddenness or the immediacy or the already hereness of some kind of perfection. Right? We say it's all right here. You already, your mind is already Buddha nature. Right? And just we're interested in a kind of breaking through the layers of delusion that right now are seeming to obscure the utterly free nature of mind. And then it's all here perfect just as it is. Very nice, <laughs> compelling. And, of course, like any, any, either of those can be, you know, very, can be powerful and important ways of practicing, and either can also be limiting in some way. The limitation of an endless a sort of path mode, of the endless cultivating and refining, cultivating and refining, is the tendency to keep, like a carrot, on a stick, right? That some sense of um, of freeness always seems elsewhere. When I've cultivated a bit more love, when I'm more compassionate, when I've when my <coughs> meditation is better, when I can sit for longer, and I'm cultivating the capacity to sit for longer, and I'm cultivating uh, more concentration, and I'm cultivating and. Wonderful, you know, many good things happen in that process of cultivation. But if that's one's whole model of practice, it tends to be rather endless. And you can be cultivating for a long, long time. And if that's your model, the question then arises, how much have you cultivated? How, like, where are, from starting at delusion and ending up at liberation, how far are you? <laughs> I'm glad you laugh. I'm glad no one's ready to say, oh, somewhere about uh, 60% of the way along. Right. So we see that there's a, there's a kind of uh, 
we, we see something of the, the, the comedy, right, of the, of the path view. And yet, we may also say to ourselves or to others, oh, I'm, on a, I'm on a path, I'm on a spiritual path. Or maybe you're on a journey. That's the new, I mean, you're on a spiritual journey. Right? Everyone's on a journey. Even on those pop talent shows, they're on a journey. Right? And so there's, a, there's the, that important sense of immediacy, which we were um, invoking yesterday, that cuts through the sense of journey, where what we're interested in isn't where we can get to when we've cultivated something, but we're interested in this, like mind like this, body like this, world like this. And the more we really feel into body like this, we start to feel that, oh, this is the Buddha's body. This is the, the body of life. This is the body that living beings experience. Right, not body as thing. If I think of body as thing, well, it looks like this and it looks different to all those bodies. But the experience of body, you know, what is that? It's an experience, most fundamentally, of a kind of just of aliveness, of a dance of sensation. That dance may be configured sometimes in denser ways or lighter ways, hotter ways or colder ways, comfortable or uncomfortable ways. But most fundamentally, the experience of body is just a, a mysterious and rather enlivening and actually rather wonderful sense of basic aliveness. And when you look at mind, not for what's wrong with it or what we need to resolve about it or what we need to understand about it or what we need to cultivate in it to get somewhere else. What's the basic experience of mind? It's, it seems to me luminosity, like just the power of mind to know. Mind knows. It's like it shines a light on experience. Thought arises and it's known. Hearing happens, just like now, my voice is going in, hearing happens and it's known. So, along with all the mind activity, which could definitely do with some refining, right, and some cultivating sometimes, there's this kind of just ground of mind, this basic capacity of mind. Mind is on, right? The light of mind is on already. You're conscious, you're awake, you're here, you're functioning. Wow! Right? This human life is doing its thing. I don't remember turning it on. Right? I'm not very good at keeping it going. Like I mean, I remember to eat and sleep and shower. Right? But there's a whole bunch of much more complex things going on that I don't remember and mercifully don't even need to remember to do that just makes it all happen. It's a kind of natural intelligence. Mysterious. Immediately available. And yet because mind is running around in various ways, getting caught in this and that, 
the sense of immediacy can likewise have a certain limitation. If we just tell people, and sometimes in the kind of satsang traditions, which emphasize that, the kind of uh, what's sometimes called the neo-Advaitan traditions, I don't know if that term means anything to some of you. But there's that tradition that it's all perfect just as it is. Everything's here. Mind is free. It's all happening by itself. There's no one there. Oh, <laughs> jolly good. Those are, those are important, truthful, pointing out teachings. Similarly, one has that, like in the Dzogchen tradition, I don't know if you've ever had pointing out instructions. Pointing out instructions basically go like this. Mind is already free. Recognize that when the bell rings. I find those, I love pointing out instructions. I don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not being pejorative about them. Wonderful. Some way to point us beyond the, all the complexities we make with our mind. And the sound of the bell, why do we use bells in Dharma practice? Because the sound of the bell somehow is very evocative of just cutting through our inner bullshit. The bell, oh yes, you know, sometimes you're sitting and then dong. It's like, oh. But if we only try to tell ourselves or tell each other, you're already free, you're already free, you're already free, there's something in us may respond to that, may feel a certain truth of it, may be very drawn to it, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't. It doesn't help us. If that isn't immediately clear and available to us, it doesn't help us go from where we are to how do I let that, how do I make that more clear to myself in my life? I mean, I can keep going along to see whoever it is who keeps ringing the bell and telling me you're already fundamentally free. So some sense of putting those two seeming paradoxes together, the willingness to refine and cultivate and practice and feel into and find out about and learn and develop. And yet, to be able to do that without the sense of doing that to get somewhere, but to do that in the midst of the fundamental, open, Freely unfolding immediacy. Or as Suzuki Roshi says, trying to put those two things together, things are already perfect just as they are. And there's plenty of room for improvement. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that might be a certain guiding light for our practice together. So let yourself sit Walk, eat, speak with each other later on at lunchtime, etc. And that sense of the fact that you've already made it to being a fully functioning human. Right? You can relax in that. Body knows how to sit. Lungs know how to breathe. Mind knows how to conceive and imagine and remember. Right? Speech knows how to speak. Ears know how to listen. Brain knows how to make sense of things. Heart knows how to feel. It's like it's all happening just as it should. 
And we're invited to trust that, relax into that. Let body be body, let mind be mind, let world be world. So there's a a fundamental kind of quietitude of not needing to get anywhere. Not pushing oneself to attain some state. Not giving oneself a hard time because one's mind is wandering or is dull or whatever else it is. Things are perfect just as they are. And there's plenty of room for improvement. Meaning, okay, let me, in the midst of this natural functioning that's happening, in the midst of this naturalness of bodily life, naturalness of sensory life, naturalness of cognitive life, naturalness of emotional life, let me see how can I attend wisely? How can I attend closely? How can I attend curiously? How can I really feel into and find out about my experience? And you see how it's very, very different to cultivate and refine and follow and learn when one's doing it out of a sense of already here, already okay, already naturally functioning rather than out of the rather anxious or neurotic even sense that, oh my God, I've got, to, I've got to do this in order to get somewhere. So, in that spirit, we'll hang out together in a way that we call meditation in honouring the natural immediacy of things and in honouring this natural capacity to explore and refine. And like yesterday, because I've already spoken for a few minutes, if you need just to stretch your legs or to use the bathroom before we sit, please feel free to do that. There are moments for all of us and sometimes it may just be uh, the first few moments of a meditation or it might be some point in the middle or it might be in some un- unbidden, unimagined moment in, in formal practice or in the rest of our life. But there are moments for all of us where that kind of ease, that trustworthiness, that okayness, the naturalness of it and the obviousness of it are quite available to us. And really kind of tasting and resting into those moments is a fabulous support for our practice. And at the same time, of course, even evoking a sense of natural ease, natural okayness, can also be challenging when that's not available, especially when the guy at the front is saying, oh, you just trust the moment. And, but there's something in the way. There's some grit in the shoe of our practice, as it were. You know, yesterday I was saying about how that, that line, uh, what was it? All experience will always be disappointing or something like that. Every experience will always be unsatisfying. And how that even after the years of saying that and practicing with that, how it sounds rubbish. 
But, it, but the feel and living inside that feels freeing. And in a way, this sense of invoking okayness, it's the opposite. It sounds good, right? Oh, just rest into the natural, trustworthy, freely unfolding okayness of the moment. Oh yeah, sign me up. Let's put that on the poster right, for the day. And fill the room and put that on the poster. It sounds good, but it, it can feel like if that's not what's coming alive for us, what happens? We can easily make ourselves feel uh, wrong or inadequate or we have some pushback, blame ourselves for not being able to contact that or we blame the one who's saying it for saying such nonsense or whatever. It's a little like, uh, you know sometimes if you run a bath and it's a little, it's a bit too hot on first contact and we know you go into a bath, oh, you can relax into the bath. But sometimes you're lowering yourself in. It's like, oh, oh. And so we kind of lower ourselves and then come back out again. And we sort of, there's tension in the arms. And we lower, oh, oh. It's like that. <laughs> sometimes kind of trying to lower ourselves in to the natural okayness of things. It's hard to trust. And partly that's because it's, it's uh, most, of, most of our learned experience is to not trust our experience. Most of our learned experience is to not trust what's happening. Most of our learned experience is to be somewhat wary of or braced for or compelled to pursue something. We, we define our experience very often in terms of problem, deficiency, lack. And if you just notice the, like, the subject matter of your conversations, or you just listen to the conversations that go on around you, and how invested we get, or in how invested we get others feeling, how, how much we feed on problem. You know? And sometimes it's like, oh yes, right? Did you see what she just did or said? It's like, oh my God, I can get so much mileage out of bitching about that. (laughs) Oh, the sense of being offended. And I have to say, there's a particular culture around that here in the US. (laughs) You guys so love to be offended. It's like, that offends me. Or that makes me uncomfortable. Just that line. We don't say that to each other in Europe. That makes me uncomfortable. It's like, yeah? Life's like that. We all get uncomfortable. Right? But here there seems to be some kind of sense that I shouldn't be ever made uncomfortable. Right? And yet we, maybe, if we're honest, we actually like to be made uncomfortable because it gives us a lot of stuff to get into. So, Invoking this sense of an, a natural ease in which to sit, a natural okayness in which to sit. doesn't mean everything feels right or everything feels nice, but just invoking the possibility of being able to um, soften into the sitting or soften into the walking down the street. To actually uh, allow that undercurrent of fundamental okayness. Even though there's many, many details we might identify that might feel you know, unsatisfying, 
or, uh, or unpleasant, either in our own experience or in the situation that's happening or in the wider world. And so there's another paradox, right? That counterpoint between what we said yesterday afternoon, all experience will, be, will always be fundamentally unsatisfying, and at the same time, oh, it's all okay. It's all workable. It's all uh, settle intoable. So, let's make a little time for some walking just to continue the thread of practice and to maybe to follow this thread of um, okayness. You know, walking I always think of as a very integrative practice. Between the, the it's less formal. Right. And sitting has, the, has the, the most formality of any posture to it. And walking, one's bringing certain, the same sort of meditative intention to be contactful, present, uh, intimate with experience, but into a less formal mode, walking, the ease of walking. It's very translatable, like this morning, just waiting for the sea train, just just walking up and down the platform. I must say, there's something about train platforms or subway platforms. They're made for walking meditation. Right? Especially because the atmosphere, not so much today because it's Sunday, people are a bit more relaxed, but the atmosphere often, especially weekdays on the subway platform, is there's a certain vibe of impatience. Right? People want to get where they're going. And sometimes it can be just uncomfortable to stand in and to feel that it's got an electric feel in the air so I find walking wonderful partly just like I was saying yesterday about the, the mala being like a grounding rod walking it's easier to, to meet kind of energetic discomfort when there's some movement than just in the, the stillness so just letting oneself walk and it doesn't look too weird, and who cares if it does, but it doesn't, I mean, you can be as weird as you like in New York, right? But it doesn't look actually too weird to be pacing up and down, except the pacing can have a great kind of quietitude to it. And for, in my own experience, it's a long time, a great sense of freeness in it. There's something about the fact of being in this very conventional situation and a situation where there's a lot, you know, kind of a lot of tension and confusion in the mindscape around and just being able to walk in the midst of that, walk freely. Wonderful. So I won't send you off to the subway for 20 minutes to walk, but you might, you know, as you walk today, just that sense of the letting walking be an integrative practice. Letting, seeing if the walking can be a, a sort of portal or a way in to a certain okayness. Sitting after some time often becomes uncomfortable, and the discomfort can be a certain sort of challenging edge to letting the relaxation or okayness be be uh, be here, be the foundation. And yet, walking probably for most of you, depending if there may be some injury or back difficulty or whatever, you know, walking can you can the physical discomfort isn't there. And so just seeing if you can really drop into the walking, letting the natural okayness of walking happen, letting yourself feel the, the, the miracle of the way body knows how to walk.
And seeing, you know, on the one hand, cultivate a certain focus, a certain sensitivity, a certain embodiment, and yet based on the fact that it's all all right, Buddha is walking. Buddha mind is displaying itself as this human experience, putting one foot in front of another. So, like yesterday, we'll take 20 minutes or so, and then we can come back to sit together. Well, like yesterday, we'll make some time just to for, for a quiet sitting together, continuing to follow the same thread of practice, after which there'll be some time just to hear from you and explore whatever's standing out in the way you're practicing. But before we sit, just that same invitation, if there's anything that I've said that isn't clear or any question you have that would help you to better orientate uh, during the sitting now, please feel free. Yeah. Uh, for those who take the mic. For those who are familiar with the subject, you did mention Zochen and you gave an example of Zochen practice. Mm. Uh, I noticed right in reading the description of the course coming up, you know, and before I came here and I've I've been to your teachings before, so I'm already know what I'm getting into. But um, I'd like you to comment on how your approach uh, is impacted on by Dzogchen because it sounds an awful lot like you're influenced by that tradition, even though, you know, um, I, I feel that entitled to bring up the subject because you did first. Okay. So, okay. So, I, so I, I just, I'm just curious to know how that, how you, what your way of approach is impacted right. on by Dzogchen practice. Okay. That's not quite not how we'll help you orientate in the next sitting. But I'm just curious. to say, it's not. I've done some Dzogchen practice and studied with some Dzogchen teachers, but um, it's not any kind of direct influence. It's it's not that certainly not that I'm trying to incorporate any kind of Dzogchen flavor in my in the way I direct practice. It's more that the the kind of immediacy that's pointed to in Dzogchen. Uh, has a correlation to the kind of immediate ground that that is the foundation of practice, and that comes through. My my main teachers were all really uh, grounded in the Theravadan tradition, but somehow all my teachers were also kind of renegade, uh, heretic, uh, iconoclastic, and with a sort of ir- a certain kind of irreverence like for tradition, way. right. Right, and or equally Zen, actually. I mean, Ajahn Buddhadasa was often compared to to Zen teacher in the way he taught, even though he had no particular exposure to Zen. Uh, Again, you brought up you brought up the subject first, but Advaita Vedanta is often spoken of when they talk about Dzogchen. They also speak of Advaita Vedanta as a precursor or resonance with elements of Dzogchen. So. I just was curious to know, that's all. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hi. Yeah. So one of those 
things that have always bothered me is this idea of um, emptiness or that, I don't know what the right words are, we, we don't exist or whatever. Mm. And I just find that very hard to accept in the sense that the way I see it is it's just an evolution of the self mm-hmm. versus a non-being of the self. With ultimately, I, I can imagine the less identification. And I think, um, I don't know if it matters, it's just, <laughs> it's just on my mind. But I think, um, I think in a way it interferes a little bit with my practice. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you to totally cast out the idea mm-hmm. that doesn't fit, which is, you know, we spent some time exploring that yesterday, the, the lurch from... I do exist to I don't exist mm-hmm. and each of them being equally rigid positions mm-hmm. and not actually despite what we sort of the impression we often get from Buddhism not actually the, the Buddha was into the middle way right mm-hmm. which is the abandoning or leaving aside of all fixed positions mm-hmm. and the extreme of I exist mm-hmm. and to say well let me just put aside that extreme without negating it in the other I don't exist let me put aside positions and let me meet experience let me realize in the way you're putting it that there's a way in which I can evolve the sense of what this is that's participating in life and maybe the evolution of this what this is that's participating in life doesn't need to be stuck into one or other absurdity Mm -hmm. called I exist or I don't exist Mm -hmm. I often find it strange that spiritual teachings are um, presented as a kind of a quest for truth. Right? I want to know the truth. We're seekers after truth. Because in my experience, I don't find much in the way of truth. Right? And truth tends to be, the expression of a truth tends to end up being a fixed position. Actually, I find a lot more ambiguity than I find truth. Right? I don't find much, self, don't find much truth about the self find a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. And yet, that ambiguity, ironically we might say, has a truthful tone, a truthfulness mm-hmm. to yeah. it. So in a way, we're learning to trust more and more into the ambiguity of experience. The fact that our experience can't be neatly put into kind of categories called it is or it isn't. Mm-hmm. It exists or it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that or the Buddha calls that the, the, of the three main types of fixation or clinging. First one is the, the clinging that we get into around desire, fixating on what I want and don't want. Then the second is the fixating on views and opinions, right? fixating on what I think. And then the third, more subtle, is called the fixating on existence or non-existence. Mm. And the tendency, you know, that's the way a normal conventional mind works. We can only conceive in terms of it is or it isn't. Therefore, there's self or there's not self. And so our practice is really cultivating a capacity of mind that's not beholden to that clumsy dichotomy of things existing or not existing, being like this, being like that. And that's why attending, like we say, if we think body, body as thing, just, you know, there's a body. But there's a body that makes it seem like a fixed thing, a solid thing, a static thing. 
So that's, that doesn't fit. But then he said, there's no body. Well, hold on. So we give up. There is or there isn't. And we engage, well, what's this like? Oh, it's fluid. It's alive. It's vibrant. It's changing. And just by attending to that, what we're doing, we may not realize it for some time, but what we're actually doing is we're learning to tolerate ambiguity. We're learning to be comfortable with ambiguity. Because we, we, don't, we don't naturally grow to that. That's something we have to practice. Right? We, we grow up and our education teaches us and normal psychological development teaches us to strive for some certainty. Right? I want to know what stuff is. I want to rely on there being a this or a that. So if the way you see, if that sense of we don't exist seems clumsy to you, I get it. Leave it alone. And if what this seems to be about is more an evolution of the possibility of how this engagement with life can be met, can be explored, can be understood, can be expressed, great. I share a thing I've done recently for was more around a relationship than anything, is I've started to imagine people and myself without a physical body. So I can just feel kind of who they are without being distracted or distorted. Right. It's pretty interesting, mm. just the shedding the physical. Yeah. And my own identification with the physical to just feel myself. And Anyway, right. it's kind of fun. Right. Yeah. Um... Related to what you just said. Just hold the mic on oh, a little. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, this sense of feeling uh, okay about accepting, okayness, all of that. Sometimes I find it, I struggle with that, in that not becoming detachment and, uh, and uh, apathy towards uh, even myself and my life and, and also others around. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how to deal with that? Still accepting. Did you hear the second half of the? <laughs> no, I, I, I know. Things are perfect as they are. <laughs> and yes. There's plenty of room for improvement. Sure, but that, uh, but wall calls uh, for our action as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so if you only have either half of that, is very incomplete. If we just oh, things are perfect as they are. Things are perfect as they are. Well, hold on. It doesn't matter where I look. Right. That can't be a complete statement. We look at whatever aspect of our world really needs some attention. We look at whatever aspect of our own patterning or fear or neuroses or compulsions really need some attention. It's not, it's not good enough. But similarly, if we only have the other half, there's plenty of room for improvement. There's plenty of room for improvement. There's, there's no rest because there will always be plenty of need for improvement. And so there's no rest. And somehow it's the paradox. That's the, the practice, which is ambiguous, ambiguous, right? How do I honor both parts of that statement at the same time? Right. If I just, if my practice is one that's driven by the sense that there's plenty of room for improvement, it just, it's just, it's all hard work. And you never, you never get to, you never arrive to the place where, oh, I've done it now. I'm totally improved. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever gets there, or, or the world. You'll never improve the world enough to, to ever rest. So how do I, how do I uh, find the rest that can, that can actually not just imagine, but to know it's okay. 
It's okay. And the, 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 the way in which we can sense every single condition of the universe right now is supporting us being here. That's how okay things are. Like, and whether we attend to the, the way breathing is happening or the way body is just maintained alive, it's like everything is supporting us. And of course, then the paradox is we can easily jump to, yeah, but what about, you know, this kind of uh, unsupportive condition? When we look at the political situation and all the unsupports of that. And of course, those are true. Those are part of the what needs improvement. And they're also abstractions and habitu- uh, habitual ways of, of, um, of just undermining our fundamental okayness. So it's it's subtle, and like you say, it's it's. When I try to speak about this, I'm always wary of um, of not being dismissive of all that needs improvement, right? and yet at the same time, um, not being dismissive of the, of our capacity to find a rest in the midst of in the midst of that which needs improvement here or or there. Yeah, and um, and the our practice then is one of struggling with that paradox, where we find ourselves on one side or the other, and we find ourselves hovering above the bath that feels too hot and wanting to lower ourselves in, but not knowing how to, etc. So, hang in there. On a related note to what you asked, um, the relationship between like like seasons of of being and doing, of being trusting, and then doing t- the actions that allow for you know that the need to be done. Um, any insight on, for example, I had a big event that I produced on Wednesday. There's always there's so many things that could be done to make it you know, and a wonderful experience. And so I found this, like, gauging where is the internal place where it's be- it's enough. Um, I'm in, like, you know, I have a big question around some, like, legal matter. And so it's always, like, how much more research or calling different people to be done before the point where it's enough action and then trust? And that's a, that's, that's a point where I, yeah, that, like, where the, the kind of meat of it comes up for me. Yeah. Yeah. Good, you know. Any insight? Which I do. No, none. <laughs> I mean, it's just like that. That's like you say. That's where the meat of this is for you. I mean, far be it for me to say, oh well, do this or do that. But that, that struggle, that friction, that questioning—that's our practice. It's not that we find some convenient uh, midline where we've resolved all those things. Right. I would like that. Yeah, you'd like an enlightened retirement, like, right? Like we were talking about yesterday. No such luck. But we don't need an enlightened retirement because fundamentally there's a freeness that's right here. And the capacity to know the freeness that's right here is actually what galvanizes the capacity for the plenty of room for improvement part. So sometimes we're busy doing the improvement part, and sometimes we're able to taste the okayness part. 
Some of us, our aptitude or the teachings that we respond to are more of the path variety. I can cultivate, I can refine, I can develop. Some of us, our aptitude is more towards all are right as it is. My own feeling, but it's different for different people, my own feeling is that one's capacity to refine and improve and cultivate works much, much better when it's predicated on finding some basic, trustworthy, fundamental okayness with oneself. So I try, I try to emphasize that bit a lot because it just gives a certain inner peacefulness with oneself, a certain inner, like a real tolerance of oneself. And then one can improve and refine and cultivate all kinds of things. But if one's cultivating and refining and improving based on some sense that I've got to do this stuff because I'm so flawed to begin with, the basic view of oneself as flawed keeps on undermining whatever we're cultivating. So, I was thinking about that for some reason just when I went to the loo just now. The sense of a lot of practice, a lot of my practice. Actually, the three things I came up, first one, first thought was, a lot of practice has been learning to really tolerate myself. Which is sort of, and it struck me because it's a strange kind of way of expressing it. But actually, it's true. It's like I've learned how to tolerate myself and then further reflect, and how to enjoy myself and how to forget myself. And so those sense of, you know, just the phrases that spoke to me in that moment. But there's a lot in learning to tolerate oneself. Which, which we're not very good at. And then enjoy oneself. No, I don't mean so much in the, in the conventional way, sense of just having a good time, but actually to enjoy oneself, to enjoy these myriad apparitions of Martin, as I was calling them yesterday. To enjoy them, to see how they're kind of unique and interesting and uh, creative, actually. Even if they're very ordinary, I don't mean some kind of grandiose display of creativity. I mean just the fact that I have a thought. I mean, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> right? Just the fact that anything pops into consciousness. So learn to enjoy. First, to, to really just to tolerate. It's okay. You're okay. Yes, you're neurotic and crazy and fearful and, uh, and greedy. But yeah, it's okay. you're okay. Right? We can make room for the neediness and greediness and laziness and craziness that we were speaking about yesterday. And then as we get more tolerant of ourselves, we start to actually enjoy the fact that there's, there's this one that appears in consciousness. This one that has kind of humanness to it. This one that has kind of love and has generosity and has fear and has this, but to enjoy the fact that this one appears. And then, increasingly, to f- forget oneself it means that the, 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 very inc- the tolerance and then the inclusion and the enjoyment means that the sense of self-consciousness starts to just wilt. I'm just not so concerned. If I know that this is tolerable and enjoyable, I'm really not so concerned with what people think about it or what I'm supposed to present or display or whether it's going to be approved of or not. Just, I just don't care so much. Just, just don't mind. And so that sense of forgetting oneself in, in, 
in the quietening of that voice that's constantly second-guessing oneself. You know the way we replay conversations to ourselves. Yes, but what did, the, what did he think when I said, duh, 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 duh? And the imagining, the view that the other may have of us. Oh, my God. So, you know, I, I find it interesting myself, just the, the kind of constantly, it's why I don't teach with any notes, for example, because I never know what I'm going to say. I don't want to know what I'm going to say. And I'm, and I'm not really interested in, trying, in remembering what I've said before, even if it, I thought it was good at the time. Right? I'm, what I'm interested in is trying to find an articulation right now, whenever the right now is, of, of this mysterious life. And it, it turns out that whatever we find as an articulation can be opened up and can reveal a lot. So, oh, this moment seems to me like a practice of tolerating experience, enjoying experience, forgetting self-consciousness. And in just the way that the articulation, in order to be alive, has to be fresh in the moment, can't be relied upon a formula, so the whole piece that you're saying, that meat of your practice, no formula, no reference point, no strategy, and then a creative response, an appropriate response, a skillful response. All right, that's it. So, like we said yesterday, show me your mind. Now, what's, what's going on? What's standing out to you as we practice and reflect together? Yeah. Hi, I'm Chris. Hmm. I just have a sort of a, a kind of nuts and bolts kind of question where... Uh, in following the breath, I have a tendency to start controlling the breath, and yeah. it turns into like a you know huffing. <laughs> yeah. And then, just any ideas on how to follow it without taking it over? Yeah. <laughs> Deep breath. Yeah, Deep I, I did that for <laughs> you. I did that. I struggled with that a lot in the beginning of my practice. A lot. The drag. <laughs> <laughs> What can I tell you? It goes away. And of course it's symptomatic not just of what happens with breath. It's really in a way that, uh, like is always happening, that uh, how, how, like one of my friends says, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Right? So it's like, breath is just showing you. Something as easy, you you know that you know how to breathe. And you know that you don't need to influence that. News carries on, just does its thing. And yet, where attention goes, habit tends to follow, right? And so the attention goes to the breath, and the habit is, right, whatever, it, whatever the particular nuance of control is for you, some of us, it's trying to get it right. right? I want to get the, the meditation right. I want to get the breath right, as if there is a right way to breathe, right? And however much you might hear people like me saying, well, no right way to breathe, some idea can persist that, you know, I, there's a, wait, oh, hold on, where should the breath end? A bit more. And then, you know, the tendency, like we may well recognize elsewhere in life, to overcomplexify, is that a word? Overcomplicate our experience, to want to let it happen, and yet, and yet, the habit. 
So, you know, just the willingness to kind of begin again. And meanwhile, it's sometimes the idea can be, well, I can't practice properly because I keep trying to control the breath. And when I stop controlling the breath, then I'll be able to practice properly. But meanwhile, your practice is is dealing with whatever the frustration that arises, you know, so that letting the frustration be available to experience. You can cultivate all kinds of quality, the quality of beginning again, the quality of a certain patience, quality of forgiveness of yourself, right? So that for however long this tendency persists, and it may go away and then come back a little, etc., to recognize that your practice is alive and well and that you're cultivating good things along the way. And at some stage, maybe suddenly, maybe with a little bit of back and forth, that tendency to control will, will ease. And that ease will not be just a change in how you relate to your breath. It'll be actually symptomatic of a greater kind of capacity to, to meet and respond more freely and less controllingly to the stuff of life. So that's, that's the main part. And in terms of the more nuts and bolts part, sometimes it's helpful to just, you know, open your eyes maybe, something just to shift a little bit and just take a kind of, a, a, just a breath and a sigh without trying to think about it too much. And even that I know is easier said than done. I mean, that was my particular silly fixation was like was where the end of the outbreath was as if there was a right place you know yeah yeah so feeling the relaxation of the outbreath i found very helpful but you know one can take that and make it into a thing as well to kind of overthink about and fixate upon so good luck <laughs> Uh, this has been happening to me since yesterday, and it's something that comes and goes. And I've talked to a number of teachers about it. Uh, very often, as I um, work with the breath, it'll slow and become more shallow. And then I'll just make this very abrupt, <laughs> like this, this abrupt inhalation uh, that actually I find to be a little bit uh, startling. Mm. And I don't know if I should relate this to, you know, the Buddhist instructions when you breathe out, when you breathe short. What is it? Um, When you breathe in short, know that you breathe in short. Mm. And when you breathe in long, know that you breathe in long. I don't know how that relates to what happens to me, but it's a very abrupt, almost a gasp. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's audible to other people around me, but it's been happening quite a bit since yesterday. Hmm. And, What's uh, the feeling that goes with the gasp? Uh, a startle, a, a startle, mm-hmm. like 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 an abrupt, like you know, I, I almost jump a little bit. And uh, prior to the gasp, it's co- very abrupt. Yeah, and prior to the gasp, when you say breath is very kind of shallow or, or subtle, right? Is there a lot of presence and contactfulness with that, or or not so much? Kind of an unconscious state, right? You know, like not really being much aware of anything. Yeah, almost like I'm dozing off. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, um, 
One thing that might be helpful is to let the, the kind of your central channel be as open as possible, mm-hmm. right? And that means probably just rolling, like rolling your hips a little bit, mm-hmm. which lets the belly kind of hang out and be mm-hmm. fuller and rounder. I have a problem doing that. And opening, opening mm-hmm. there a little bit and just having a sense of that open channel. When mm-hmm. you say problem, what kind of problem? Mm-hmm. You say, I have a problem doing that? What no, I said, problem? I don't have a problem letting my belly hang out. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. But <laughs> I don't mean uh, the, the sort of physical way belly may be just... or not, right? But just like that rolling the hips forward and opening the shoulders. It's like, it's like letting the central channel be a place where breath can come and go as freely as possible. However deep or shallow, where the gasps happen, doesn't matter. Leave it alone. Well, that, that brings to my next issue. I recently developed Lyme disease and I have arthritis in both my knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't sit cross-legged or on the Seiza bench comfortably for any no, length of time. No need. If I sit if I sit on a straight back chair on the edge of my bed, which is what I prefer, uh, I find that the open channel, erect spine, you know, head up straight, I tend to kind of like not quite a satisfactory a posture for obvious reasons, mm. you know. And uh, well, those those elements, stability, mm-hmm. right, uprightness, openness, and ease, no difference between cushion and a chair. Even if you just sit on the edge of your bed. Yeah, no difference. I would say the height can help so that your feet can be kind of pl- well planted, flat on the floor. That helps with the stability. Well, the reason why I chose to if, sit on my... I'm sorry. If you're in a straight back chair, sometimes if, the, if, it's, if it feels like it's too much work to maintain that, which for some it ha- can be initially, putting a cushion just behind your lower back right. can help. But just, you know, feeling your way into that kind of open, what I might call open-channeled, open-central mm-hmm. thing, allows the breath to come and go freely. It's not so much about presenting the gar- preventing the gasp, actually. Right. It's more that allowing that coming to go freely, you're less likely to go dull. Mm. The dullness that dullness. leads to the gasp dullness. is probably yeah. coming from some kind of collapse. Off. Right? And that off. leads to a physical collapse. Yeah. And then... The thoracic cage, the chest collapses, belly collapses, throat collapses. I I, I probably probably related. I probably have um, um, uh, sleep apnea. It it runs in my family, Uh and uh, that may have something to do with it. Right, right. So, same thing. I think that little postural thing is important. I'll do it. I'll work on that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, both of you. Cliff? Um, I was uh, sitting in that uh, ground of being okay. Hmm. And um, as a ground, as, 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 a, as a way of being. And uh, you know, looking back on it, it, it was, in this last sit, it was, was incredibly delightful. And it occurred to me that it's, it's this okay, which is a wonderful concept for me. Hmm. It's very, it's I, in many ways, but um, the okay was, was that ground. And the only thing that I, I realized that 
could possibly make it not okay was simply a thought that it wasn't okay. And strangely enough, that occurred to me that that was okay because it was just a thought. Mm -hmm. And in a way, there was that sense of perfection that was whatever. Then I was thinking after the meditation about the quote that you did from Suzuki Roshi. And uh, I've heard that many times before. And, you know, everything is perfect, paraphrasing, now improve. Well, if it was perfect, there would be no way to improve it, then it wouldn't be perfect. Hmm. So it is perfect, and it's always perfect. And this is the question. This is the hard one, which I've struggled with. And every time I get that sense of perfection, it comes up again. So, and it's, I think it hits at what Suzuki was saying. So it is perfect. But then there's suffering in the world. Hmm. And there's injustice that we have a, for lack of a better word, because uh, I, I don't want to shoot it, right? But there's a urge to do something hmm. with hmm. Uh, a response hmm. to it. Let's hmm. not say a reaction, but there, there seems to be a response in our hearts. <coughs> so how do we reconcile being in that place of it's perfect with uh, I've got to give money to Planned Parenthood, I've got to oppose uh, the Trumps and this yeah. and that, and yeah. that there are people in pain that need my help. Yeah. Or that's a, that's a need and that's a statement, but there's an urge to help others. How is the two reconciled yeah. from that ground? You have to see. I mean, I would say it doesn't need reconciling because actually the, the relief from our own self-torture that we get from being able to really feel a trustworthy, okay restfulness in the midst of life is so refreshing energizing liberating clarifying that it makes way naturally naturally for the just automatic heart's wish to respond to life in a way that kind of serves others that supports the well-being of others it's like a bodhicitta if you like is like pours out of that place so we don't need to reconcile. It's like the idea of passivity. Oh, if I just if I'm just meditating and feeling okay about everything, I'll I'll kind of like I'll just sort of melt into and I'll I'll be passive. But actually, we don't we don't forget that like being able to deeply contact what we're sort of calling. I actually don't like the word perfection very much. I'm only willing to use it in the context of Suzuki's quote when it's immediately followed by its the paradoxical contradiction of it, right? But the, the fear is, or where we, where we try to think our way into it, the idea is that um, I'll somehow forget that the world needs attention, and I'll forget that there's injustice, and I'll forget that there's uh, people suffering, and I'll forget that I have a, sort of roles and responsibilities to be active, etc., in the world. We won't forget that. It's just like the idea that people can have a fear when they hear teachings about the transparency or unreality of the sense of self. 
It's the idea that, yeah, but if I wasn't a self, how would I act in the world? As if I'm going to melt into some primordial soup where I'm going to lose the capacity to make any distinction between self and other, and it's all going to go a bit trippy. We don't lose the capacity to be in the world as if we're a self. So, you know, there you are. What was the effect when you say you sort of touched into or rested into that in the meditation just now? What was the effect of that? It, it, it was just, it was, a, it was a peace, it was delight, it was smooth, and it, it, it was a ground. Right. Where, where there is no ground. I, 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 you know, there is no ground. It's just constant change in process. So right. I've given up on ground, but there is a ground in that. Right. It's, That's it, why it's it called the groundless ground sometimes. Ah. Right. Yeah. So there's a certain peace and a certain delight, a certain smoothness and a certain ground, you say, a certain reliability, what I was calling trustworthiness. Right? It's refreshing, it's energizing, it's clarifying. And then you come out of that and your first question is, how do I respond to the world? Right? Beautiful. There's no reconciling of anything needed. You, you, you nourish yourself with that and then you wake up and say, how do I respond to the world? So there's the reconciliation right there. You don't, far from losing your concern for the world in that, uh, in that ground, it actually further wakes up one's concern for the world, one's love for the world, one's wish and need and sense of responsibility and capacity to respond to the world, to embrace the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Good. Katerina? Oh, Caroline. Hi. Um, I continue to have a problem uh, sitting by myself. Mm. Um, my method of meditation is walking meditation, um, and I've and I've come there to realize that the reason why I have problem with sitting meditation is because I have not given myself permission to do nothing. Hmm. Um, And even just now, (laughs) when I was sitting, um, I recognized that I was having conversations with myself, but in the mode of problem solving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because then I'm doing something productive. The tyranny of productivity. Yes. Any suggestions? <laughs> I mean, it, it's very seductive because I actually did have a bit of an insight coming out of the sit just now. Um, so it, I find it useful. But <laughs> All right. So that may be helpful, just reminding yourself, this is, I'm going to do a session of wisdom productivity. <laughs> <laughs> or compassion productivity. You know, if that helps you. Okay. Um, otherwise, g- given that, you know, there's a certain pressure and you find yourself sitting, kind of um, hitting up against your own uh, patterning about the need to be productive and the need to be useful, partly it might be helpful to actively listen to that in the sitting, right? to contemplate that, not as a way of just getting caught in the content of it, but just being really listening, really willing to get to know that 
mind state, that exhortation to productivity, and getting to know wh- whose voice is it. It may well have a parental flavour, I yes, imagine. Yes, mother's. Mother's voice. Come on, Caroline. Right? And just so you, that you get to know it as the, the historical imprint that it is. Right? The conditioned, habitual thing that for, that for decades, as soon as it appears, you say, oh, you're beholden to it. You were beholden to it outwardly when it was mother, and now you be, then, as that's what we do, we internalize our parents, and then you're beholden to that voice internally. Right? And yet, as you attend to it like that, you start to get some space from it. It's not the truth about what you need to do, it's the historical imprint. It's now become we call Mara, right, in the Buddhist tradition, has become that inner exhortation or inner critic or inner judge. You should be productive or what's the matter with you? Why don't you do such and such? Or you know you've got to, that list to accomplish before and you're wasting your time meditating. Or It's good to meditate, but you can do that when you've cleaned the house and put away the this. and So it's like you get to listen, hey, hi, you sit there like this, <laughs> with that voice a little bit. That might be helpful. And the other thing would be getting, letting yourself be really quite gentle, at least initially, about how long you sit for. Because if it's quite excruciating to sit with that relentless push to go and do something, so sit yourself, you know, just five minutes or so to sit with that. And then if you, the, there's something about the regularity. It's like then you look back on a week and you say, oh, I can sit with that for five minutes a day. And then you might find that there's something about the regularity of formal practice, which is really, really potent. And the regularity itself is much more potent than the duration. So if it's difficult to sit, don't worry about the kind of length of sittings here where there's a lot of support, etc., etc. That's hard. Sitting in a kind of short, short, short time, gentle way, and actually actively, rather than, oh, trying to push away that awful production, productivity voice, actually letting that be your practice. And you might find that once you turn towards it and include it, it sometimes, actually quite suddenly and miraculously, loses a lot of its power over you. Because you're seeing it as just that, rather than as the truth. I'll try. <laughs> it feels exhausting. Yeah. And, um, and I have been comforting myself through all this time by um, with the view that walking meditation is you know, that it's good enough. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular thing to sitting meditation that's better than walking meditation? Not better, but different, I would say. They're they're different as postures. I don't want to say too much more than that because I don't want to reinforce any idea of that your sitting is, walking is in some way inadequate and that if you were really properly practicing, you'd be sitting. And yet if you're sitting, you're wasting your time because you ought to be productive. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, be uh, content yourself with your walking. You've got a well-established and committed walking practice. Right. There's something you love this practice, and you yes. express that yes. through a commitment to walking. Beautiful. So, don't undermine that with yeah, but it's not as good as sitting. Mm-hmm. And yet, 
If you recognize that, uh, you know, there's that part, like you're saying, part of the reason I don't sit is because of a sort of fear of that voice. Yes. Then um, rather than hoping that voice will go away or trying to sit in resistance to that voice, just to see of a certain turning towards it as just a voice. It's just blah, 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 blah. You should be more productive. Blah, blah, blah. Sounds of the traffic go by. <laughs> Sounds of that voice coming. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So let's see. We should stop for lunch, actually, I think, and then we'll have more chance to explore together this afternoon. And I also wanted just to say to those of you who are on the live stream, you could also, if there are, if there are uh, questions or uh, explorations or things arising for you from, for you from practicing along with us or from what I've been saying um, there's a little button in your I think it's the bottom left hand corner is it which says help (laughs) and if you click there you can type it so if you have things that you'd like to just kind of feed into the discussion or ask about type them in there and we'll make some time in the afternoon period where we can uh, where we'll look at and respond to, to things that may come in from the outside yeah so, you know, lunch is interesting, I often find. I mean, we know, we know not lunch is interesting. But in the middle of a practice day, you know, how do we hold lunch? Sometimes we can hold it as just, okay, we sort of put down our practice and go off into the wonderful world of lunch right? and then uh, come back to it. But it's often interesting, and I think there's a certain potentizing effect that we've been... Um, you know, directing our attention in a certain way, it's often helpful, I think, to see how, what, what's it like to look at lunch through the same lens that I've been looking at the rest of my experience this morning. So as you, as you kind of just go out into the New York streets and, you, you know, there's a combination maybe of what you like and what you don't like. And I'm not just talking about the stuff on the menu, right, but just the experience being in the street, just the stuff. And... Just maybe to have that that question running through, like I was saying earlier, you know, thought life may be comfortable or uncomfortable. What's, what's being seen around you may be pleasant or unpleasant. And body may be comfortable or uncomfortable. And just having the this, this sense of the possibility may not be very findable in the moment, but just the willingness to kind of feel for, or hold as a kind of very, very open question. What might be reliable in the midst of all this? What might be rest into a bowl in the midst of all this? What might be okay despite the constant vicissitudes of, uh, of the likableness or non-likableness of different aspects of experience? Could it be something like feeling your legs? It could be, it could be, yeah. Feeling your legs or the chair. Which, by which really we mean, not legs, but something about contactfulness with experience. Right? That's what you're pointing to. It's like experience itself can be all over the place. But the very fact of being contactful with it, however it is, can offer an extraordinary sort of refuge, right? of reliability, of kind of a touchstone. So you might very well be something like that. We call it legs, but what we really mean is presence. Right? Yeah. 
So uh, please enjoy your lunch and uh, we'll come back at about uh, 1.20. I'll ring the bell. So that's an hour and 20 minutes from now. And, oh, 2.20, thank you. Otherwise it would be a New York lunch. And uh, Kathy just asked me to say a word or two about Dana before lunch because she couldn't be here now. Like I said yesterday, there's that principle, right? I've tried to support you the best I can. Please support me the best you can. And, of course, it's, it's interesting. You know, Dana, teaching on the basis of Dana is uh, delightful sometimes. <laughs> it's also rather precarious and uh, less than delightful sometimes. And, um, you know, I, have, I wonder about it a lot. I wonder how much is the spirit, is Dana in the financial sense, lots of beautiful expressions of Dana, at New York Insight, right, in terms of people volunteering and contributing and giving a lot of kindness and time and energy to keep things functioning. But I wonder sometimes, the financial aspect of dana, which is supposed to be this practice of generosity, I wonder how much is it, uh, how much is it conducing towards generosity, actually? And how much is it conducing towards a more of that sort of donation idea of, oh, put something in the, in the, the box, so I don't know what that looks like for you, right? I know that I think uh, New York Insight offers some kind of suggested amount. But r- my request would be, in making your dana offering, to connect with the feel of generosity. So partly that's some consideration of the amount, right? But actually to make the connection of making an offering. What an offering means, you're offering support. You're offering me support. You're offering an expression of something that supports your practice. And the, the idea, the Buddha calls dana, the foundation, a foundation for happiness. Right? And just to see if one can connect with actually a, some sense of delight. You know, generosity is a heart quality. And just to see how, that there can be some real heart in making your offering. And then we're, we're actually cultivating dana. Right, the spirit of generosity, the fact that we're here, there's a kind of, in all kinds of different ways, there's a mutuality of support, solidarity with each other, caring for each other, uh, uh, receiving what's offered, being part of offering oneself. And so that the, the offering of teachings and the offering of financial support and the offering of the time and care and energy of volunteers and the offering of various little kindnesses to each other throughout the day have a kind of a real common ground. So that then we're, it's like dana is the foundation of our practice together rather than what sometimes happens and we just think of dana as, oh, it's by donation. And then you lose all the dimensionality of what dana is really about. So please let your heart flourish in offering. And I'm very happy to be the beneficiary of that. All right. Bon appétit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.